Welcome to the My Age Podcast, a podcast that brings you conversations with people from all walks of life using music to plot a course from their early years to how they got to where they are now. My Age Podcast is part of the, proudly part of the Podbelly Network, uh, which is basically a bunch of uh, pod, really cool podcasts that kind of band it together to, um, I don't know, to do the thing. <clears throat> Pardon me, it's very early this morning, so apologies if my throat sounds nice and croaky. Um, you know, that is what it is. I should stop saying that. Can I recommend this week, um, you know, this is, this is I guess, the genesis of what started the Podbelly Network. Um, it's called the Sofa King Podcast. Now, these guys are several hundred episodes deep. They've been doing it for about three or four years, about four years now, actually, four or five, whatever. Um, I'll give you the spiel, and then I'll give you the actual spiel. So the spiel is, the Sofa King Podcast is a weekly podcast dedicated to popular culture and recent recent events and whatever topics the hosts find interesting. From, cult, from conspiracy theories and technology to the mass media and their future. This podcast explores two interesting topics per week in a way that is simultaneously informative, critical, and humorous. The podcast hosts have big ideas, big opinions, big mouths, and give their take on weekly topics in a way that is both cynical and educational. Um, it says two. They actually usually do three, although sometimes they do what they call a bonus episode because their following is that large that they get people to send in questions and... They riff on ideas and that kind of thing. But anyhow, yeah, so if you can podcast, you can check it all out. Just throw into whatever the social medias you're using is Sofa King Podcast or Podbelly Network. Um, and you can go from there. So, yeah, that's the thing. Um, what else was I going to say? Today's episode is the one and only, in you know, in my opinion and a lot of people's opinions, one of the nicest, nicest gentlemen in um, Australian punk rock. Um his name is Ross Hetherington. He is most famously known for drumming in Body Jar for, as it turns out, a lot shorter than what I thought. I thought he'd been in there forever, which, you know, as a kid, I guess it seems like it. He only drummed in Body Jar for 10 years, which is something we get into. Um, so, look, I apologise for the audio quality. It's I got this new thing, this new interface, um... And it's one of the big spruiking features was it does really, really good quality uh, phone recordings. And this was the first one I'd ever done. And really, really good quality is definitely overselling it. It's it's okay. It's, you know, it has its moments. Um, I guess I've just got to kind of sit work, tweak it better um, and work out the best kind of way to do it. So when I don't do podcasts that are face-to-face and the people don't have the technology to record from their end, um, we can still give decent quality audio. So stick with it because it is worth listening to. It is really, really good. It is <clears throat> so stick with it because it is actually really enjoyable um, once you kind of break the barrier of the... You know, it sounds like someone's you're chatting to someone on the other end of the phone. Um, that's, the, that's the audio quality. Is. But, you know, whilst the quality isn't... The quality of audio isn't there, the content is... Oh, it's up there. So... Look... <clears throat> That's that. Nothing really else to spruik. Um, obviously, you can follow us on all the um, social medias if you think this episode's worth a dollar. Send us a dollar. My age pod, sorry, um, paypal.me slash myagepodcast. You can send us a dollar there or you can subscribe to a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash myagepodcast. You know, it means a lot. Um to keep this bad boy afloat and every dollar helps and it's not expected but it's always appreciated so 
before we do the episode, I just want to I'm I'm going to try and keep this a more regular thing. I did it last week last episode and I got a really good response from it, so I'm going to do it again. Um a little new music thing. Uh this I came across this song from another podcast, the Axe to Grind podcast, and one of if you if you listen to Axe to Grind podcast, then you might be somewhat excited to know that next episode by the way, next episode we have one of the three Axe to Grind hosts. Which one it is, you'll have to wait. But um, so they do a new music thing every once in a while where they dedicate like an hour and a half to playing all different music from all sorry, different music from all different kind of genres or hardcore or you know, under the hardcore umbrella. Um, this one really tickled my fancy. Uh, <clears throat> the band is called Sunstroke. I'm not sure where they're from, I probably should have checked that out. Uh, the band is called Sunstroke. Um this is this is a track from a I guess it's a I think they're doing a physical copy. It says they are, but I don't know where to get it from. But um if you go to the new morality zine and I'll post the links obviously, new morality zine, Sunstroke are doing a two track two track promo um called the Fall Fall Risk Promo. Uh which is one song from an upcoming twelve inch that they're going to release, which they say is in the fall, which is obviously I think, no, yeah, so it's the fall in the Northern Hemisphere now, so it's spring here, which is, makes it about right. <coughs> um, this song is an absolute banger. Um, it just reminds me of, part of it just reminds me of As Friends Rust in a really good way. Um, so, you know, I know a lot of friends out there like As Friends Rust, so, you know, you might get a kick out of this. Um, the cool thing about this as well is 100% of the band camp and physical sales of this release will be donated to the Walnuts Wellness Fund to aid uninsured people access to emotional therapy, um, which seems to be a very vital... Well, I'm sure it's a vital cause all over the world, but um, obviously particularly in the US. You can read about it if you just Google Walnuts Wellness Fund. Um, but yeah, just look on a really... Yeah, on just a simple level, I think this song's fantastic. <clears throat> I think this song's fantastic, and on you know on a grander scheme, I think these guys are doing a you know are doing a really cool thing to kind of put their money where their mouth is with um, the donations going to a really good cause. Uh, again, the band is called Sunstroke. I'll post links on social medias and that and whatnot. Um, you can get this from NewMoralityZine.Bandcamp. Just kind of Google that and see how you go. Hope you like it. I'm sure you will. Um, and then after that, we've got Russ Hetherington from X Body Jar. Cool.
So, My Age Podcast, uh, episode number 38, I think it is. Let's go with 38. Um, with me on the line with my new bit of uh, podcasting gear, I have, I'm going to say, probably not a face that a lot of younger crew might know, but anyone who's over the age of 25, maybe 30, real, uh, recognize this gentleman to be one of the most approachable, one of the nicest, and one of the most, I guess, respected drummers in Australian punk rock. Um, and definitely, yeah, as I said, one of the nicest people in Australian punk rock and just people in general, uh, Ross Hetherington. How you doing, mate? Very well, thanks, Joel. Thanks so much for having me as a guest, man. I'm really looking forward to this. This should be a blast. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it too. So, look, um, we'll start this how we kind of try to start them all. Um, let's talk about your early years. Um, okay, yeah, I, grew up, I grew up in Melbourne in the early 70s. But I guess my um, introduction to music probably happened in about 1976 when my family moved to Taralba in Newcastle. Um, you brother, you my, moved to um, Newcastle? Yeah, yeah, from 76 to 77. Yeah, my dad had a, got a job working for BHP. So, uh, yeah, we all packed up and headed to, uh, to Newey for a couple of years. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it was around that time um, that's where I kind of got turned into, you know, onto on music. I remember my... Um, Sister had a, an album by ABBA called Arrival. Yes. And uh, yeah. he played that thing to death, man. And um, yeah, I just remember it being a really kick ass record. Of, I remember it had like, you know, so many hits on it, like, you know, When I Kissed the Teacher, Dancing Queen, you know, Dum Dum Diddle, Knowing Me, Knowing You, you know, Money, 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 Fernando. Just, it's kind of like. Um, yeah, it's kind of like. Death Leopard's Hysteria, man. It was like a greatest hits album in yeah. one record. You know, I think it had like five top ten singles on it. And um, yeah, I just remember just walking around the house just listening to that and my sister would play bits of it on the piano. I don't think she could play a song from start to finish, but you could just play like little bits of, you know, pieces from the song. So um You had a piano at Newcastle? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't play it. The only thing I could do on a piano was lift the lid. Oh, right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> but, yeah, my um, mum could play a little bit and my sister could play a little bit. And um, my mum also played a lot of classical music, which I really enjoyed. I just really liked the dynamics of it. You know, the, you know it could be really soft and delicate and then it could just be, like, you know, really super loud and powerful. And I really enjoyed that, too. Um she also listened to a lot of opera, and I've got to say, to this day, I just don't get it, man. Opera is just <laughs> yeah. something I will just, it must be just an acquired taste, and I just do not get it at all. You know, it's kind of funny, man. You, you know, it's that classic parental thing, you know, when you're listening to your rock music and your parents burst in your room and go, you know, and say, what is that racket? I can't understand a word he's saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, man, I can't understand a word. 
Pavarotti. Oh, opera boys. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they speak the language, I still have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, were they, like, obviously they were really into music then. Like, did your mum have much of a, is music something she picked up in later life? Or did she play piano from from an earlier age? Or oh, I think she just dabbled in it from an early age. Um, my dad wasn't really that musically inclined at all. Um, my older brother played the trumpet. And, um, yeah, yeah, my sister played piano and later became a really good singer. Um, yeah, so it was just always kind of music, you know, in our household. It was just sort of part of the way it was. But, yeah, back in, yeah, around 76, 77, that's when I kind of first started to get turned on to music, I guess. Yeah. And so it was um, you, you know, you didn't really mention you played an instrument that at that early an age. Um, like, obviously we'll get to it later, but, like, did you dabble with anything at an early age? Like, besides drums, did you dabble with anything at an early age or just kind of what you are made to play at school? Uh, in, in, <laughs> in primary school, it was sort of mandatory. You had to learn the recorder. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of dabbled in the recorder. Nothing's um, changed. In early high school, <laughs> in early high school, I sort of dabbled in the trumpet and then the baritone euphonium. But I just remember, like, playing in a high school band and, like, you know, I kept sneaking peeks at the drummer and kind of going, man, yeah, that looks like fun. That's that's what I want to be doing. So, um, yeah, later on I switched over to drums. Sick. So, like, I, I guess have you? I'm gonna guess you've got, you're gonna go with an ABBA song, unless you're gonna surprise me. Like, what's the first song you want to go with? Ah, uh, let's go with "Knowing Me, Knowing You." That's just a really cool pop song. I love the harmonies. Great production, yeah. and um, yeah, it just got hooks to burn. So yeah, let's, let's give that a Milton Burl. Sick, let's do it.
Cool. So knowing me, knowing you, what was it? What was it about that song as opposed to every other hit on that album or that ABBA ever produced? Was there something like that kind of that just struck a chord with you, or what? What was it? Uh, it, it was just um, I really loved the, just the hooks of it, and even at a young age when I didn't really understand relationships, I just found it strikingly sad. You know, just um, you know. A, People who've been together, then they split up, and you just know that it's never going to be the same again. But the best you can do is just try and be civil and amicable. keep things amicable. You know, I just I know, even as a little kid, I found that really, um, yeah, just very sad and moving. So you moved from Melbourne to Newcastle, which, yeah, you know, that's a hike, and I guess especially during the seventies when there weren't the not that they're monstrous freeways, but like. The roads are nothing like they were today. That's that's a hell of a move. Um, what like? How did you adjust to that? Like, it's I'm not sure what suburb did you we, did you grow up in prior to that? Um, prior to that, I grew up in Doncaster in Melbourne. Okay, and now uh, that was very suburban. Um, Terrelba in Newcastle. That was was kind of out in the bush. I just remember like I had a like a dragster, like a three speed bike, and. Yeah. I just ride it around the bush all day, and um, I was pretty much a free-range kind of kid, you know. So um, it wasn't so much of an adjustment for me, because I think as a kid, you're pretty malleable, you know. You kind of tend to, you know, adjust your surroundings pretty quickly. Yeah, I get, you're not, you're not, you don't have too many ways to be set in, as it's like, yeah. Nah, nah, you're not like setting your own ways at all at that, at that age, no. I guess the antennas are wide open. Yeah, and so how long, how long were you up in Newcastle for? Just for two years, just yeah. from 76 to 77, and then we moved back down to Melbourne in 1978. Work, like change of occupation or the work? Yeah, right up, I or? think so. I think um, my dad got a job working. I'll have to check with my mum, but I'm pretty sure my dad got a job working for John Holland, and we moved back down to Melbourne for that. So, okay. um, yeah, moved back down to our same house and all. And, um, yeah, just sort of picked up where we left off. Yeah, cool. Um, so you you said you, you've got two – you had two siblings? I've got two older brothers and an older sister. Um, sadly, my older sister passed away late last year. But, you know, when I was growing up, yeah, it was you know, my mum, my dad, and, yeah, my two brothers and my sister. Yeah, wow. So I, I can imagine, you know, moving a family of five that far wouldn't have been an easy task. Yeah, I, I could barely remember it, to be honest. Yeah, that was a long, long yeah. time ago. Yeah. But, um, yeah, as I said, they were pretty happy days from what I recall. Yeah. So a big a big theme I find with um with talking to people is that if you've got an older brother, there's a high like, – well, and, you know, obviously old, older siblings, I should say, there's a really good chance they're going to kind of impact your music. Like, were they – besides Zabba, like, were your brothers, were your brothers into anything that kind of tickled your fancy or – yeah, yeah. When we moved back to Melbourne, that's kind of when um, I started really getting into Countdown and listening to um, a radio station called 3XY, who play heaps of Australian rock. And um, yeah, I just remember listening to my older brothers and my sisters' records. And yeah, yeah at the time, I listened to heaps of like, uh, you know, like Cold Chisel, Australian Crawl, uh, Mental as Anything, um, Jojo Depp and the Falcons. 
uh, later on, you know, to final. So a lot of Australians, I mean, I wasn't around for Countdown. Did Countdown mainly concentrate on Australian stuff or like was it kind of, well, that's just what they kind of clung to? Yeah, it was, it was mostly Australian stuff. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they changed the format, format a little later on. But yeah. um, I remember the early days was pretty much just Australian-based music. And um, it was great. It was, it was such a popular show too. I just, just tune in every uh, every Saturday. I think we did repeats on Sunday as well. It was that kind of popular. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, so that, was, that had a huge impact on me, you know. Yeah, fantastic. Was buying records a thing at your age? Like or when you were younger, or again, was it like um, just kind of whatever your brother and sister had, brothers and sisters had lying around? Yeah, what whatever they had flying around. But I remember in, um, I think it was 1979, I must have been at nine or ten years old, I bought my first record. I think I think my first single I bought was uh, Rock Lobster by the B-52s. And, um, That's pretty good. That's yeah, really yeah, I love the B-side too. Uh, 606842, that was a cool song as well. Uh, but the first album I ever bought was um, Off the Wall by Michael Jackson. And um, okay. I still today, I think that's a great record, man. There's uh, something about Quincy Jones' production that's just timeless, you know. It still holds up today. I actually uh, listened to it again recently just to um, you know, pick out a track to play for tonight. And, um, yeah, it, it's a really good record. So before we get to Michael Jackson, what like how were you hearing Rock Lobster? And, like, you know, I... My, see, when I was younger, my introduction to B fifty two B fifty twos was Love Shack. And right, right, okay. Like Love Shack versus Rock Lobsters, literally like Venus and Mars kind of thing. Like they are two songs from two different planets, but bizarrely by the same band. Like, what was it about? What was it about Rock Lobster that made you jump on it? And was it like was it popular back then, or was it underground, or kind of? What was the vibe? Oh, no, it was popular, but it was just weird. I just remember seeing their clip probably on Countdown or something and just yeah. thinking like, wow, this band are just so freaky, but, you know, strangely endearing, you know? Um, yeah. It just, it, just, it just struck a chord with me. It was, um, and I loved that riff and, you know, they were, they were making really kooky noises with their voices, you know, like they were making... You know, Manta Ray like, sounds and all this kind like, of I still, to this day, I still can't understand, like, who took, like, you know, it's such a wild song that, like, the, the, what's the word? Like, the, um, the vision that someone had to not only, like, you know, people are going to write weird songs and not to call it too weird, but, like, people are going to experiment with music and trying to push the boundaries, but to release that, like, for, like, a quote-unquote big record, record exec, to go, no, this is this is a single. We can people will like this. Like we just have to get it out there. It blows my mind. Yeah, totally. Like, um, yeah, they really rolled the dice with that one, but thankfully it yeah. paid off. You know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> okay, so well, let's talk about Michael Jackson. What was it? I mean, you know, besides the blatantly obvious, was um, talk to me about your love of Michael Jackson. Ah, oh, yeah, I think I saw the um. Don't stop till you get enough clip, and you yeah. thought, "Oh man, this dude is cool. Ah, he's got, you know, like, I think he's wearing like a dinner jacket with rolled up sleeves, and he had this, had all these killer moves, and he had a really cool voice." And 
don't know, just the, the groove of it was great. And there's always like this really super busy percussion going on in the background that it never kind of detracted from the song. I just thought it was a really classy, cool record from, um, yeah, start to finish, right to back, That's top cool. to bottom. <laughs> That's awesome. That's unreal. Is there anything else you want to talk about about Michael Jackson before we pick a track? Um, not really, but I, I don't know. Have you seen that um, Leaving Neverland docker in there? I don't want to. Like, and and it's not, and it's not in a um. Uh, how do I put it? It's not like a. So obviously, I'm, you know, if you if you've had your ears open to any kind of pop culture in the last six months or however long it's been out for, you'd know. You know, you would know about that doco. Yeah. Um, and it's not. It's. I'm. I'm not watching it because I don't like. I have a particular opinion on Michael Jackson, whether he did it or not, or da da da. Like that whole thing i just don't want to see the human tragedy that is you know a couple of young kids even go through what they're like what they're accusing of if that makes sense yeah no i'm like, hearing you man like I, it's I, like watching like it's like for me it's like akin to watching a scary movie like i'm i'm just not interested like i've got no interest in hearing about true crime like you know true crime podcasts are massive at the moment i don't listen to them because i don't want to find i don't find entertainment in hearing someone get cut up 17 different ways yeah and yeah yeah so but yeah parents, what are you going to say man. about it what, what's your thoughts oh look i actually thought it was a bit of a cheap shot like um yeah yeah i guess i don't know if it's true or not i don't see why these uh, these two guys wouldn't come forward if it didn't happen but i kind of figure if michael jackson's not around to defend himself then um it's yeah kind of, kind of a bit of a, a yeah cheap shot you know yeah i i think that's a very valid argument to or not argue not even argument to ha- make but like you know yeah you obviously the the men are like in their late odds oh, what late late 30s early mid to late 30s yeah those guys yeah yeah like they had a long time to say something about it. That's very true. So I guess with a lot of artists, you know, you've got to kind of like divorce, you know, the um, the music from the personal life. You know, like uh, yeah, you know, take take Ted Nugent for example. Like um, yeah. I can't stand yeah. that guy. You know? I think his yeah. right wing political view just completely sucks. But still, yeah. chuck on, you know. Intensities in ten cities, and god damn, that's a good rock record, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's he's got wrist for days. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess you just have to find that kind of happy medium where you can uh, still enjoy the music, but not let the the personal bullshit get in the way and you know, yeah. deal with it. And look, Michael Jackson's songs are undeniable. There's no two ways about it. They're just undeniable. Like, yeah, everything. First, yeah. Those, yeah, yeah. That and Thriller were just amazing records. Yeah. Cool. What did you go with, and then why? Um, I, I went with uh, work, a song called Working Day and Night, just because I just really like it. It's just got, it's just got groove. Um, it's, yeah, once again, it's got that busy percussion going on, which kind of makes it sound rushed, but it's not. It's just this fat, and the chorus is just, uh, yeah, it's got hooks to burn there. No, 
you could you just hear that and just think like you know Bruno Mars and Justin Timberlake have got a lot of um you know oh oh a big debt to Quincy Jones ah, and Michael Jackson without a doubt man no doubt about it yeah so is this um is this still countdown ear or like Oh Are yeah, you, yeah, is, yeah. This is still countdown here a big time, man. <laughs> so, like, how were you? How else were you listening to music? Like, um, you said radio. Like, were friends into music as much as you were, or were you kind of like? Oh, uh, yeah. we, we just listened to the radio, and then we'd you know, at school. We'd be like, "Oh man, did you hear that you new know, song by ELO or whatever?" Yeah. <laughs> it was just yeah, we just sort of talk about it, and um, yeah, just just through word of mouth, you know. Because it's like, you know, you're you're a f- you're a few years older than me, so like my point of reference is, like my relation to the radio probably would be a better way to put it is going to be completely different to yours. Like, was that what all the you know what all your mates did, like of an evening or after school, like or of an evening, like they'd go home and just kind of sit glued to the radio? Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Man, that's just how it kind of was. You know, it was just the, the norm, and um. And the, the weird thing was back then, there was apparently sort of a lack of format. You know, or maybe there was, and I just, was just too young to pick up on it. But I don't yeah. know, I just seemed to play really cool stuff and not too repetitively, you know? It was just a, yeah. Yeah, it was just a real, I just remember it being a really good, healthy sort of time of my life, you know? Yeah. I, I'm sure I've heard, I can't think who it was, but I've heard someone say, like, you know, 70s radio. It was it was a show that was curated by the DJ, like as yeah. opposed to you know it, as opposed to yeah that whole repetitiveness of the same song shuffled through each night every night kind of thing and yeah and someone could actually take you on a on a journey depending on how they were feeling you know and it was it was a true it was a true art form as opposed to I guess you know without sounding too cynical nowadays it's just well, this is what the record label wants to push and they're, you know, and they're going to give us this, this and that to, for promotions and then it all comes back to advertising and so this, yeah, is, this totally. is the songs we're going to play. Yeah. yeah, like back in the late 60s, early 70s, man, your, your DJ was just somebody who actually just played records. You know, they weren't like yeah. a radio personality per se. They just played the music and it was really diverse, you know. I remember like talking to a, a friend of mine who's a little older and he was saying he grew up in England in the 60s he was saying man you would turn on the radio and hear any, anything from like you know 60s pop to like you know big band swings jazz to anything you know they just played anything as long as it was good you know it was yeah. really cool really diverse and I think um, a lot of radio today really misses out on that yeah very much so yeah very much like you know I've often you listen to the, like every the rarity they listen to the radio I'll be. I'll walk into a room. It'll be room, and it will be on. And you hear a song and think, "Oh, this is you know, this is a this is a fine song by a fine rock band." But there's way there's a lot of great songs on this album. Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. Why not play those? Exactly. Cool. So you mentioned a few instruments you were playing. The was it the baritone? You yeah, I think I started out on trumpet first because um, my brother, eldest brother, played the cornet and the trumpet. So I guess. You- must have just had like a spare one around the house. So, um, yeah, someone said, I'll just play that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I kind of started out with that, just doing the very basic. And I just didn't really dig it, you know? Like, I really liked the sound of the trumpet on records and whatnot, but 
I just didn't want to play it, you know. Yeah. I just, I think at that age, I just really like the idea of drums and just. I think there's the idea of just bashing something and having it make a noise. It's just really simple yeah. and primitive. Yeah. And I'm not an overthinker, man. I'm a pretty simple kind of dude. So I think that does kind of really appeal to me. <laughs> so how old were you when you first started having um, a hit? I bought a practice pad and a pair of sticks when I was about 14, I think. And, um, yeah, then the next year, yeah, that was 1983. And um, 1984, my dad got a job. Um, in Ghana, in Africa, um, working at a manganese mine. And uh, I wasn't ready to go over to um, Ghana at that point. So um, I went off to boarding school in Ballarat. So, um, yeah, I, I spent a year in boarding school and, uh, yeah, I just took my practice pad with me and just, you know, just kept doing paradiddles and double strokes and all that sort of thing, you know, driving my other solo board of nuts. <laughs> did, there, did anyone from your family go with your dad? No, no. Um, my mum caught up with him later, but very sadly, he uh, passed away from bowel cancer. Um, yeah, it was very, very sad. Um, but I, I kept, that was about like mid-1984. Um, I completed yeah. my, my years there. Um, around that time, I started really, really getting into Van Halen. I remember um, the, the jump <laughs> clip came out. Look, dude, what a clip. Yeah, yeah. awesome. I feel and, like, um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, I just uh, rewatched it recently, and uh, I noticed that the drummer, Alex Van Halen, has a fire extinguisher on his drum riser, and I thought, Man, that's pretty funny, you know, but in case you like spontaneously yeah. come back like one of the guys from Spinal yeah. Tap or something. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. That's clean the seat off, spray it down, clean the seat off, get yeah, some Yeah, it's funny. I just remember had like so four kick you... drums. But like, four kick drums, man, that's a little excessive. Last I checked, he only had two feet. What the fuck's going on there? <laughs> You must have been like so into drums at an early age if you spent a year playing paradiddles on a practice pad. Like, did you have a kit? You had a, was there a kit accessible? No, no, there wasn't. But um, I remember, um, yeah, on my, the weekend of my 15th birthday, um, I had a weekend pass and I went back to Melbourne to see my mum. And she very kindly bought me a five piece Pearl Maxwin set um, off the trading post. And I was just, Absolutely thrilled, man. And I'll, I'll never forget, though, I remember setting it up and um, having a hit and just the look of the expression of horror on my mum's face. <laughs> she's just like, oh, my God, I had no idea these things are so noisy. What have I done? <laughs> yeah, the only people the only people I kind of feel for more than drummers themselves are the parents. Yeah, my mum yeah, had never been up up close to the drum kit before in her life, you know, she just picked this thing out of the trunk, out of the trading post and, you know, just, you know, didn't play it, just packed it in her car and took it home. But, um, but yeah, because, you know, in hindsight, it's a pretty, you know, crappy kind of kit, but I just thought it was the best thing ever, you know, I loved it. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, it had to be, you know, mindful of the neighbours and whatnot and make some noise, but, yeah, it was, just, it was just really good to, you know, move from just like a practice pad to uh, something that actually makes noise and has proper rebound and all, and cymbal. <laughs> so, but you had to leave it there? You couldn't, you obviously couldn't take it back to No, the no, school. I had to leave it at home. So, um, 
Yeah, back to boarding school, back to the practice pads. <laughs> and giving my yeah, fellow boarders the sport. And we, you were getting lessons at school? Um, like, I got, I went after boarding school, I went back to my old high school, uh, yeah, Doncaster High School. And um, the, the band, the school orchestra drummer was this guy called Nicholas Steen. And um, he was a couple of years older than me. And um, I started getting lessons off him. I used to uh, go around to his house and uh, he had this awesome Olympic kit that just sounded great. I just loved playing it. It sounded cool. And um, he also had this kick-ass home stereo, man. I remember like one day after a lesson, he took me upstairs and played me um, Good Times, Bad Times by Led Zeppelin, which I'd never heard before. I remember being blown away, man. Just the sound of it, I swear, man. If you close your eyes, I swear the band were playing like right in front of you. It just sounded incredible. And John Bonham, that double kicks in that song, it's just amazing, dude. Yeah, that's a, that's one of those songs where you just like, you know, take out all the take out all the hype of, um, you know, the, like the stairway to heaven and whatever. Like you just you can win anyone over with that song by just, yeah, by doing exactly that. Throw some decent headphones on or a decent sound system, close your eyes, and it will take you somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. nuts, man. And that first record, I remember like reading a Led Zeppelin book a few years back. They recorded that album in less than 30 hours, man. You know, it was like, you know, but, but, you know time is money, the clock's ticking, let's just go in there and just smash it out. And um, for a debut record, man, I get well, so you're in your arsenal. You've got um, you got Led Zeppelin and uh, Van Halen. Yep. What else is kind of kicking around? Uh, musically I guess Van Halen was a bit of a gateway to metal, and um, I remember. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, my sister at the time worked for a magazine, a music magazine called Smash Hits, and she used to do album reviews. Oh, did she? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember Smash Hits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, one day she just got all these sample records to review. And uh, one day she came home and she said, oh, I'm not going to listen to this. You know, do you want it? And she threw me this record. And it was Iron Maiden, Live After Death. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, man. I, I'd only heard, like, maybe two Iron Maiden songs at that time. You know, like, I think it was, like, those uh, Runs of the Hills and The Number of the Beast. Yep. And I just remember putting this album on and opening the gatefold. Like, it was like a double album, vinyl. Yeah. And just listen, just the the performance and the production was just incredible, man. I remember like opening up the gatefold and just checking out they had their like tour, all their tour dates. Yeah. They did something like 189 shows in 331 days. That's insane, yeah. man. Yeah. Can you imagine that? And it's just, not it's not like it's a small production travel. thing either. Like it's you know right. massive yeah. production. It's... This is like a pre. They're way pre-internet, man. Like, yeah. when you're on the road, you're on the road, too. Yeah. Right? You're just, no way of Skyping your wife yeah, or anything yeah, like no, that. Yeah, no, you are, you are literally you're, gone. Yeah. Yeah, you're gone, you know? You, now and again, you may catch a phone call if you're two time zones kind of, Yeah, you know, if you can work um, out the time difference, yeah. Overlap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you can work out without Googling it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, that, yeah, that was a, a, an amazing record, too. That, that, that really uh, shaped me as well. And not long after that, I remember buying um, Bruce Springsteen live 1975 to 1985. Okay. It was on sale. 
And um, I just thought they were the same thing again, man. I just knew a couple of his hits, you know. I thought, oh, yeah, it's going for $15 at Myers. I'll, I'll pick this up. It's like a three-CD set. And um, before long, man, I was listening to that album from start to finish. And it's still today one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen records. It's one of my favorite live albums ever. Wow. Just the, um, just the, yeah, just the performance. But it's, it's done over a decade, you know, from 75 to 85. And, uh, yeah, that, you know, the East Street band was just badass, man. Yeah. I remember um, I got to see them. Oh, incredible, man. I got to see them, uh, I think it was like 2013 and Hanging Rock. Yep. And um, Bruce was 63 years old at the time, and he played 10 minutes short of three hours, man, and just sounded incredible the whole time. The E Street band was just badass. But, like, um, doesn't skip a beat either. Like, you know, just, no, yeah, no. like, it's it's three, like, you know, it's just shy of three hours of intensity. Like, there's not, you know, yeah. yeah. And even, even like, like those high notes, man, he was still hitting those notes. Yeah. Like, dude, how can you do that? Now you get Dan Carter's age, like, bitch about having to play a half hour set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you've got that many hits, stuff. just give it to give it to them. Give what the fans what they want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Totally. Yeah, what else was happening music besides besides Bruce Springsteen, besides the boss? Um, Actually, sorry, can I interrupt? Sorry. Yeah, you, sure. You're back in. Are you, by the time you buy it, like by the time you, your sister gives you um, the uh, live Iron after Maiden. yeah, a live after death, and but and you bought um, uh, the Bruce Springsteen live album. Springsteen, yep. Is like, are you drumming with other people? Like, are you, sorry, are you playing in bands, or is that kind of on the radar, or where are no, you with that? Not, not as yet, man. I'm, um, I'm one of those guys. I, I didn't. I wanted to make sure. Um, if I joined a band, I could at least just keep a beat. I didn't want to be one of those dudes that's like, yeah, I've got a pair of drumsticks, now I'm going to join a band. I really wanted to make sure I could just, uh, you know, at least do the basics. Yeah. So um, I waited a couple of years um, before I joined my first band. But, um, yeah, I remember, um, yeah, it must have been about like 86, 87, um, probably the, the biggest, you know, musical change came to me when I was, uh, I got a job working at Pizza Hut, just uh, okay. washing dishes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just as a dish pig. And um, in the kitchen, we had this little tape deck. It was most, I don't know how it even played, man. It's the most disgusting thing ever, man. It's just covered in just grease yeah, and just fat filth. and just kitchen grime. Like, you turn the cassette over and you just have to wash your hands, like, straight away. Yeah. <laughs> it's just filthy. But um, I worked with this guy called Steve Vandenberg, who later became a good friend. And uh, he was a couple of years older than me. And um, while we worked, he'd just play me these cassettes. And, um, man, he got me into stuff like The Cramps and The Beast of Bourbon. You know, I hadn't heard these bands before. And I was like, man, this is fucking awesome, man. And he was one of those dudes who was like, if he was into a band, he was really well-versed. Like, um, yep. once again, you know, pre-internet, if you wanted to know something about a band, you had to really dig deep back then. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I'm, yeah, I'll never forget one day he gave me this cassette with um, Ramones Rocket to Russia on one side Sick. and, like, um, uh, Johnny Cash kind of, like, he, you know, hit-pick thing on the other side. But, man, changed my life, dude. Yeah. I just remember... Um, yeah, hearing that Ramones and I think 
at the time, at the same time, Ramones Mania came out, which was a double Ramones Best of, and I just consumed that album, man. I just loved it. Um, and after that, I just started, you know, going back and buying every record they did. There was just something about it that just um, really spoke to me, you know. It was just so raw and stripped back and energetic and it's full of attitude and that's so, you know, about you know, alienation and, you know, the power and the fury of untamed youth. You know, as a, an awkward teenager, that's what you want to hear, man. Yeah, it was great. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it was empowering. It's kind of like, you know, you know, I... I I wasn't like uh, antisocial or anything like that, but I, you know, I get along with most people, but I never really felt as if I sort of belonged. Yeah. And it wasn't after you, you know, listen to the Ramones a few times, you go, it's okay, man. You don't have to be like anybody yeah, else. That's yeah? the beauty you don't have of that's, to belong. Just, Yeah. Yeah, just be yourself and chances are the better you'll be. Yeah. And um, yeah, that just you know, you know, helped my confidence and. Everything was, was, was marvelous. And, um, and then, yeah, the, the camera side with Johnny Cash, man, I loved, I've always loved stories. And Johnny Cash is just an awesome storyteller, man. And, um, once again, just the simplicity, you know, going from, you know, someone like, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen, who's such a flash guitar player. And that's cool. I still dig Eddie Van Halen to this day. But then, you know, Listen to someone like Johnny Ramone who couldn't play a guitar yeah. or his life is still just so kick ass. That's great. Just intensity you know? by yeah, intensity by the pound. So did you have one of those moments where you went like um you hear the Ramones and you go, Everything else is over? Like as in like everything else is now in the past, if that makes sense? Or did you you know, was it was it common for you to listen to Ramones and then listen to Number of the Beast? For a little while, yeah. Um, for a little while, just listening to the remarks kind of made everything obsolete yeah. for a little while. I was just fixated on it. But um, then again, but then I took, you know, started to come around. And um, the cool thing is, too, like when I was sort of getting into the Ramones and more punk rock sort of stuff, um, word must have got around because, you know, one day there was a kid who lived up the road, up the road from me who I didn't know at all. He's like a, just a couple of years younger than me in high school. Yeah. And one day he just started turning up on my doorstep with um armfuls of records for me to okay. listen to. Yes, sir. It was awesome, man. He got me into the descendants and Dad Nasty, Gorilla Biscuits, Mud Honey, all this kind of stuff. And um so yeah, it's a great sergeant and uh and uh, Steve Vandenberg, those two guys, I owe them a huge debt of gratitude for getting me into the music I got into at that age because it was just what I really needed at the time, man. I can't thank those guys enough. So where you know? were they getting it from then? Like, I yeah. guess just word of mouth, you know? Um, were they bringing over original, yeah. like original records and tapes or were they bringing like, you know, tape traded yeah, tapes? Yeah, or... vinyl, man. Yeah, right, okay. Vinyl. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was, it was sick. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Sick. Yeah, that is sick. That's awesome. Um, so are we gonna go with the Ramones song then? No, I start with Johnny Cash, man. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a song. He, he, I think one of the first songs I ever heard Johnny Cash play was a song called "One Piece at a Time," and um, I just loved it, man. As uh, as I said, I really like songs that tell stories, and this song is just about a guy who works. I don't know, you know, automotive assembly plant 
who um, pilfers car parts. You know, he pilfers a car part every day. And by the end of the song, he's assembled this kind of like Frankenstein kind of car from all these miscellaneous car parts. That's and, uh, so awesome. I just thought it was a really cool story. Um, Johnny's got a great baritone voice, and it's got this really cool vintage country swing throughout, which I just really dug and still dig to this day. Well, I left Kentucky back in 49 and went to Detroit working on assembly line. The first year they had me putting wheels on Cadillac. Every day I'd watch them beauties roll by and sometimes I'd hang my head and cry cause I always wanted me one that was long and black. One day I devised myself a plan that should be the envy of most any man. I'd sneak it out of there in the lunchbox in my hand. Now getting caught meant getting fired but I figured I'd have it all by the time I retired. I'd have me a car worth at least a hundred grand. I'd get it one piece at a time, and it wouldn't cost me a dime. You'd know it's me when I come through your town. I'm going to ride around in style. I'm going to drive everybody wild, because I'll have the only one there is around. So the very next day when I punched in with my big lunchbox with help from my friend, I left that day with a lunchbox full of gear. I've never considered myself a thief, but GM wouldn't miss just one little piece, especially if I strung it out over several years. The first day I got me a fuel pump, and the next day I got me an engine and a trunk. Then I got me a transmission and all the chrome. The little things I could get in my big lunchbox, like nuts and bolts and all four shocks, but the big stuff we snuck out my buddy's mobile home. Up to now, my plan went all right till we tried to put it all together one night, and that's when we noticed that something was definitely wrong. The transmission was a 53, and the motor turned out to be a 73, and when we tried to put in the bolts, all the holes were gone. So we drilled it out so that it would fit, and with a little bit of help from an adapter kit, we had that engine running just like a song. Now the headlights, there was another sight. We had two on the left and one on the right. But when we pulled out the switch, all three of them come on. The back end looked kind of funny, too, but we put it together. And when we got through, well, that's when we noticed that we only had one tail fin. About that time, my wife walked out, and I could see in her eyes that she had her doubts. But she opened the door and said, honey, take me for a spin. So we drove uptown just to get the tags, and I headed to ride on down main drag. I could hear everybody laughing for blocks around. But up there at the courthouse, they didn't laugh, cause to type it up, it took the whole staff. And when they got through, the title weighed 60 pounds. I got it one piece at a time, and it didn't cost me a dime. You'll know it's me when I come through your town. I'm gonna ride around in style, I'm gonna drive everybody wild, cause I'll have the only one there is around. Uh, yeah, Red Rider, this is the Cottonmouth in the Psycho Billy Cadillac, come on. Oh, uh, this is the Cottonmouth, and negatory on the cost of this machine there, Red Rider. You might say I went right up to the factory and picked it up, it's cheaper that way. What model is it? 
Well, it's a 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59 automobile. It's a 60, 61, 60, so, 63, 64, 64. So, you know, not to, not to dismiss Johnny Cash in any way, shape or form, but yeah. you could easily substitute literally every lyric and phrase for Boy Named Sue and you'd have the same song. Oh yeah, like, totally. Yeah. Is that a, yeah. is that a, my, basically the same chord progression and everything? But even the even the either even the rhythm of the vocals and like the delivery, like yeah, yeah totally. But yeah, like is is that a common thing? Like is is he very um? Because my my Johnny Cash depth is rather shallow. Like um, is that a common thing? Like is it very? Is he is he similar to the Ramones in the sense that like? most people could listen to it and go, I've heard three songs, I've heard them all. Oh, no, he, he had a little more scope than that. Yeah, but, uh, yeah he, he did kind of plagiarise himself. <laughs> no doubt. Like, I'm blown away with that. Like, yeah, <laughs> Let's just change the lyrics and we'll have another song. I'll just put on another yeah, one. Totally. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, no, that, the melody worked last time. Yeah, so yeah, that's sorry, right. Yeah. <laughs> Bone Sue seemed to be a hit. Let's make another weird little story let's up and... Make- yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> That's unreal. Sick. So now you, yeah, you've now you've been uh, in, you know, you've you're you're drinking from the Kool Aid that is the Ramones. Did that it? Did that then inspire you to kind of jump behind a kit because they have that attitude of like anyone can do it, so you should do it kind of thing. Well, yeah, around that time I joined the band. Um, I think I called the Chernobyl Donuts for what 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 I remember. But I don't think we really even had a proper name. The Chernobyl but, um, Donuts. Yeah, I remember we went to um, some shitty restaurant called the Swagman, and uh, they had these donuts coming out of the machine, and the donuts were like really deformed. And this was just after the you know the Chernobyl disaster <laughs> back in the mid eighties. <laughs> But that is the perfect <laughs> name for a sixteen year old band. Exactly. Like, and um yeah, but it was just myself and this uh buddy of mine, Richie Brain from high school and two of his mates and we just started playing bluesy stuff. Yeah. And um I was never really into the blues or anything like that, but I was just happy to play but in hindsight, man, I'm really glad I cut my teeth playing the blues, man. Because, you know, what they say, uh, you know, but rock and roll without the blues is like the human body without spine. You know, it's like the backbone of rock and roll. Yeah. So I'm kind of glad I you know, got to sort of learn from the ground up. But um, they kind of disbanded, but I um, stuck with Richie, and we got a friend of mine, Clinton, in playing bass, and we just formed a three-piece. And we kind of started doing bluesy stuff that, but by this stage, Clinton and myself um, were getting a little more um, proficient on our instruments. We found we could like play faster and faster without things falling apart. Cool. And okay. um, within about three months, we'd kind of gone from like a blues band to like a um, like a power pop band, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of where it all. You know, pretty soon we were. Swapping you know, hound dog dates, you know, Taylor covers for like uh, you know, Radio Birdman covers and stuff like that. Was it mainly and, um, was it mainly originals or sorry, was it mainly covers or those originals or was it mainly, of... mainly covers? Yeah. But we chucked in a few originals as well. And um, yeah, then we got another guitarist, a guy called Tim Casey, in, 
And um, yeah, that was cool. It was really starting to solidify. And um, then Richie quit. I think he just wanted to go back to playing blues. So um, we just carried on as a three-piece, just myself, Tim, and Clinton, and um, pretty much went to, we tried the original thing for a bit. And um, yeah, we, we got enough songs together. We actually put out a demo, then um, got a record deal. Wow. Through Mushroom. Yeah, we put out an EP. That was the first um, So what's, CD the, what's the band called? The band called The Swamp Rats, oh, and the course. EP was called Bad Twama. Right. And how does that happen? Like, oh, um, you know, yeah. oh, we, we, just, we just sort of played around and um, got, got a bit of attention. And um, <laughs> I'll never forget at the time the, the producer said, you know, I'm going to put down two grand for this. And we just thought at the time, like, oh, that is such a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, how are we ever going to recoup? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. So yeah, we, we recorded that in um, oh, probably like '91, '92, I guess. And uh, we disbanded not long after that. You know, uh, I think Tim, uh, yeah, Tim went to Canada and fell in love with a girl, and um, uh, yeah, came back and got married, and then took. Took off over to Canada again. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a really good time, though, man. It was fun. Can, like, how many, just one, just the one recording? Yeah, yeah, just just one EP, yeah, Bad Twam. I think it had about, like, seven songs in it, something like that. Wow. But, um, yeah, yeah, that was, it was fun, man. Where, like, could, was... where could one hear it? Like, it's, it's probably not on Spotify, but if someone put it on Facebook, on uh, YouTube or something? Oh, I'd probably be on YouTube, I guess. I've yeah. still got the actual... I actually bought the CD a couple of years ago off um, off some, like, rare CD website. cost me about, like, 20 bucks or something. Wow. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, cool. Because, you know what it's like, man, when you, you, know, you get an album, you, you just end up just giving them away to your friends. Yeah. And, yeah, next thing you know, it's yeah. like, oh, God, I don't have my own copy. I don't copy. have my own copy, yeah. Well... <laughs> You can, that can go one of two ways. You can go really well and you can give it to all your friends because everyone wants it. Or you can be stuck with a hundred of them under your bed for 10 years and, you know, yeah, you yeah, get some for Christmas presents. Yeah. <laughs> Sick. So, yeah. um, you know, we spo- uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of episodes ago, we spoke to Cam Baines and he mentioned that um, he'd kind of poached you or like, you know, acquired you whilst you were playing in the um, Swamp Rats. What, yeah, yeah. How do you remember that all going down? Yeah, like um, we used to play with um, our bodyguard back in the day when they were called Damnation, and um, then they changed the name to Helium. But yeah, look, it was just a really close knit kind of um, community, you know. Yeah. And um, just through playing with other bands, we soon, we soon become friends, and um, yeah, um, I remember, uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember like talking to Cam, uh, you know, sort of just how kind of joint bodies are. This is the, this is the official story from what I remember. Okay, yeah. Um, I remember seeing Cam in 1994, the big day out, would have been around Australia Day. Yep. And I just bumped into him, hadn't seen him, and I said, oh, man, how's Gillian going, man? He's like, oh, no, we can't see our name, man. We're, we're called Bodyguard now. And you remember he gave me this sticker of this little um, caricature of a body in a jar. In a jar, yeah. Oh, yep. Cool. That logo, yeah. Nice yeah. One, man. And I remember too, 
going, dude, I heard you got a dad nasty tattoo on your back. On his back, yep. Give us a look. <laughs> and um, yeah, he showed me his dad nasty tattoo. And I thought, man, that is badass, man. We're talking about 1994, man. I only knew about maybe three or four people who had tattoos back then. Yeah, it wasn't man, a thing. It definitely now, wasn't, a thi- wasn't a thing. Yeah. No, no. Whereas now I can name three or four people who don't yep. have them, and one of those people's my mum. Yeah, so I just remember, like, um, catching up with Jim Van, and was like, oh, body's there, okay, cool. Then about three months later, I got a call from him. I'm not even sure how he got my number, but he uh, gave me a call saying, oh, look, we're, we're thinking about picking out our drummer Charles, you know, would you be interested in joining and I was in another band at the time called Politeness Man, and um, I was kind of digging and playing in Politeness Man. And to be honest, man, I didn't really dig um, Gillian stuff. Yeah. Uh, they were kind of um, quirky, and I was more like a straightforward rock kind of guy. So I just you know, politely declined. And that was cool. He, he was cool with it. Then about three months after that, he gave me another call and said, oh, look, Charles is quick. Um, do you want to join we'd really like to have you on board and once again i was kind of like nah man you know i'm not I'm not really into that sort of stuff yeah. and politely declined and he was cool he said oh look i'll tell you what man our guitarist ben he's having his 21st next week just truck on down man just it'd be good to see you i'm like yeah cool man yeah no hard feelings all good so um yeah about a week or two later we went to yeah ben Pedersen. Uh, the guitarist from Body Jazz slash Helium slash um, Damnation yeah. <laughs> went to his 21st and um, it was great. It was an awesome time, man. I got fucking shit hammered. <laughs> and um, at some point, I think Grant, the bass player, just said, man, have a jam with it. You know, no obligations, just, just have a jam. I'm like, fuck it, why not? Okay, yeah, cool. You're a good dude. Yeah, let's do it. So we booked in a jam next week, and I was really, really underprepared. Um, uh, I just thought we were going to drink some beers, talk some shit, and just play a couple of the singing covers or something. Yeah. And um, we got to this jam, and, man, I sucked badly. I was so underprepared and played like shit. Um, one thing I noticed was Big Our songs were, had progressed from... Um, yeah, what Helium were doing, they were just like way more solid and structured and just heaps better. And I remember afterwards just saying, oh man, look, can we have another jam next week? You know, I'll do my homework and um, we'll see what gives. And thankfully they were kind enough to give me a second crack. That's because, awesome. Man, if I was them, I would have said, screw you, man. Don't waste our time again, get lost. Um so, yeah, you know, we had another jam the next week, and it went much, much better. And um, I just remember, like, yeah, packing up my gear afterwards, and I think Grant just approached me and said, so, do you want in with the band? Awesome. And I went, you know what? You're good dudes. you got good songs. you got a record deal. But cool. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's pick up the flagpole and see who's the loop, you yeah. know? I was, like, 24 years old at the time. I was, like, you know, I had no girlfriend, no dependence at all, um, no kids or anything like that. But yeah, what have I got to lose? So um, yeah, I quit my job not long after that, signed up for the doll, and um, yeah, then it was just uh, onwards and upwards from there. It was great. I remember at one point we were um, trying to shop records, and uh, 
I kind of made it a, a, a job a few days a week, and there was a lovely lady who worked at a truck named Tracy Callan who um, got me a job working in the warehouse. And that was great, man. It was like a daycare center for musicians. I was about you know? to say, like, I, I remember, you know, when Shock Records was, when I kind of first started talking to people from Melbourne, um, you know, when the internet was becoming a thing, you know, like pre-social network, da-da-da, but like, you know, you could talk to people from other states and you'd meet people from bands and you'd be like, oh, what do you, like, you know, what are you doing? Like all these guys just seem to work in the shock warehouse. Like that was, yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, everyone kind of had this unspoken agreement, like we'll tour and you're going to, you you work. And then when we come back, you go on tour and we'll work for you. Like, you know, we'll cover the shifts. Yeah. Yeah, it was great, man. It was a sort of, yeah, like a daycare centre for musicians. And they were, um, That's awesome. There's always music playing, which is great. I got turned on so much new music that I otherwise wouldn't have discovered myself. And uh, also because we were signed to shock, they were really cool with me taking time off the tour because, you know, we're touring to try and sell them records. Yeah. So it was just a really cool arrangement. You know? It was just a really good time. I really miss the early nineties, man. That's and awesome. shock was thriving. They they had the licensing deal to um offspring smash. Yeah, Epitaph. Which went number yeah. one. So that was you know, that was a cash cows back then, man. Yeah. It was yeah, it was good. Yeah. There was a um it was you know, I'm sure that luck had nothing to do with those the guys who were running it would have known exactly kinda they saw the writing on the wall and getting Epitaph, you know, getting yeah, getting the licensing for Epitaph was just like you know, I, I felt it would have been like a license to literally just print money out the back, you know, just. Yeah, there was still a gamble involved, but yeah, thankfully it paid off for them. Oh, yeah, they, sorry. Yeah, when it, yeah, when it did pay off, I mean, yeah, it was just like it was, it would have been game busters, yeah. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, So what was your first official release with all well, recording slash release with Body Jar? Um, my first one was the the first one I actually recorded with them um, was uh, we did Hazy Shade of Winter yep. and a song called Negative Man. Um, a lot of people think I played on uh, Take a Look Inside, but I didn't. I think somehow my face ended up on the artwork, but it's not me. Uh, that was Bell. Right, okay. That might, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, because they already had that album in the can ready to go. But um, yeah, no, no, I didn't play on that. Um, yeah, the first recording was, yeah. Hazy Shade of Winter and Negative Man, and then a little later on, uh, Rimshot was the first proper album I did with them. Was um, ha- uh, Hazy Shade of Winter, was that released as some kind of single or something? or like It was the B-side. There's a, a song on the first record called GNL, yep. and it was kind of the B-side of that. Ah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Yeah, we went down to Birdland one day and um, yeah, just knocked out those two songs. And it was really cool. Just um, as it's the first time I actually really heard Cam sing like proper, like without you know drums and guitars going everywhere. Yeah, remember like thinking, man, this dude's wild, oh, dude. Kenny Watt, yeah, yeah, that was cool. And that that song's like, I mean, you know, like a, yeah, a lot, like it's not like he kind of relaxes on a lot of songs, but like Hazy Shadow Window is, you know, you've got to go for it, like. You can't kind of yeah you can't you can't rest on that song. You've got to give it a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah. yeah, just and, uh, and he he and Ben just locked in um, with great harmonies too, man. Like yeah, they they, they were just 
both really solid and great, great guitar players too. Yeah, they were pretty, like as vocally. Yeah, they were a pretty amazing duo vocally. Yeah, yeah, and there wasn't much of that going around at the time. You know, it was usually just like you know, your lead singer dude, but not many bands were really um, doing harmonies a lot. But uh, no, those guys you know, had the uh, yeah the initiative to do so and did so with a plum. So I think that was one of their. Um, that's a really good selling factor for them, you know. So, have you got a song to pick, kind of preemptively, or? Yeah. Um. Oh, I was just thinking around that time when I was listening to. Um. I was uh, probably really getting into um a band called you probably did know them uh the replacement. Yeah, yeah, Paul Westerberg. Yeah, yeah. I was around um this time, I was yeah really into the replacement, and um, there's yeah really lots of play a song of theirs called Answering Machine, which is um, just Paul Westerberg and guitar. And it's just a great song. It just sounds as lonely and desperate as what he's singing about. I think it's a really awesome track. Um, yeah, funny thing, man, like I was saying earlier, um, yeah, the replacement went up in 91. I probably started listening to them around 93, 94. Always and, um, really did. Yeah, didn't really know much about them all. I knew that they were from Minneapolis and they drank a lot. But um, a couple of years ago, I read this amazing book called uh, Trouble Boys, A True Story of the Replacements by Bob Neer. And um, he goes into great detail about the band. And it's like, man, those dudes were just such fuck-ups. You know, they were just so dysfunctional. The alcoholics, they all had abusive backgrounds and... Uh, but I know somehow through all that drinking and all that turmoil, they just created this awesome music. Um, and it, yeah, it still sticks with me today, man. So uh, yeah, let's just go with Answering Machine, bro. Sick. Let's check it out. <laughs> Yeah. 
Um, let it be. Yep, let it. They called an album "Let It Be." Wow. Yeah, I was just in the van one day, and I couldn't think of the name for for an album, and I said, "Fuck, whatever the next song comes on the radio, we're calling it that." Is that really what happened? That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. So it's just him playing the guitar by himself. Yeah. Wow. That's there. Yeah, that's it's not. That's not a. Pardon me. That's not at all what I expected it to be. But there you go. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Just um, yeah, not acoustic, but you know, electric and yeah, it just sounds cool, man. Yeah. It just makes me sound just desperate, you know. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So obviously, this like body jar is going to be the the thing that most people kind of recognise you for. Do you want to? Yeah, sure. Do you want to share some body jar stories? Uh, I'll, go, I'll just give it a. I'll just give it sort of broad strokes. Yeah, but, um, yeah, go nuts. Yeah, dude, I, I played uh, with Body Jar for ten years from nineteen ninety four to two thousand and four, yep. and yeah, gotta say, man, best years of my life. You know, yeah. just fantastic. Um, I don't know where, where do you put the highlights? There's so yeah, many, man. That's true. Um, you know, the lowlights I've sort of, sort of somehow managed to forget. You know, which you kind of do, but um, yeah. no, I've got. I was just very lucky, man. You know, we we were very serendipitous as a band. We, um, you know, we just kept getting these opportunities, and we just kept taking them because we just genuinely really enjoyed what we were doing. Yeah. You know, we were just um, having a, a great time doing it. Um, I think probably my favourite album is um, No Touch Red. Yeah. Um, but I think our best album is. Um, how it works, but uh, okay. No Touch Red was special, man. Like, uh, we were on tour in Canada when we recorded that, and um, that album is just chock a block full of mistakes, man. There's so many mistakes, the songs are all so far, but it's just very indicative of the band we were at the time, you know. Yeah. We're just young and just mad keen and just ready to go, just going for it, yeah, and um, just going for it, you know, and um. I'll never forget the first, the, the first day we, we got set up. You know, it took about half a day to set up the drums and get all the sounds right and all that sort of stuff. I think I recorded about four songs, um, but we I think we scrapped those the next day. But the next day, the next morning, we pulled up to the studio in the van and I was in the front passenger seat and I went to climb out of the passenger seat. I sort of put my hand around the back of this seat to get leverage to pull myself out of the chair. At the same time, Grant slammed the um, sliding door of the van on my hand. Oh, Jesus. Uh, hard enough for the interior light to go off. Um, oh, no. Yeah, okay, yeah. Fuck. Yeah, you know, one, one out of pain until you're thinking, God damn it, we've come all this way. <laughs> you know, we're at this right, right at this very moment, you know, to record. And I've probably got a busted hand. Dude. But, um, yeah, thankfully, no, nothing was broken. But uh, I ended up doing like 17 songs that day with very, very bruised knuckles. But that gives it more <laughs> as well, you know. That's insane. 
So you, but you also on especially well, on No Touch Red, but I, I'm thinking of two songs now. What's like now that I've got you, uh, like as a personal question, which I'll like I'll keep on the podcast because I'm sure there's many Body Jar fans that want to know the the backstory behind it. Why? Talk me through Buns of Steel. But also, oh, was- but also your photo, you, the picture of you in No Touch Red isn't you. <laughs> Who is it, and what's the story behind it? Oh, yeah. Oh, this, this, well, it's definitely not me. Um, <laughs> there's no real story behind it. Uh, just back when we were looking for artwork, you know, looking at doing artwork for the album. Yeah. Uh, Grant used to buy a lot of tattoo magazines, and he's just flicking through this mag, and his girlfriend at the time goes, "Oh, that guy looks like Bo. That guy looks like Ross." And I don't really like having my photos taken, so if someone wants to, you know, pose with me, that's fine with me. And the dude was totally cocked evil, so I was totally happy to have this uh, other guy uh, uh, you know, pose with me. So he, so really he, so the guy that had the the guy that's in the photo, the guy that yeah, the guy that's being you in the photo, that photo was taken for the artwork. That wasn't just ripped out of some magazine and. It was, yeah. We didn't get permission or anything. Oh wow! Totally, uh, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we were um, totally rogue about it. That's it. That's <laughs> awesome. Let's oh, refuse that. You know? And no one, no one at shot kind of questioned it. They went, no, nah, yeah. no one seen. And um, I don't mind if the dude's a handsome guy. Cocked diesel, man. If people think I'm that rich, yep. that's cool. Take it. Yeah, take it. <laughs> So then tell me about Buns of Steel. What what kind of what's the story behind that song and you singing and uh, you play guitar on it as well, didn't you? Or am I imagining that? Yeah, yeah. My guitar playing is very limited at least. But once again, this started out as a joke. I think yeah, once again, I think it was Grant was saying his girlfriend bought a an exercise video. Yeah. Video back in the day, not DVD, called Buns of Steel. And we I just thought it was hilarious, you know, so we just I made this bullshit song about it and um, just left it as a hidden track on Rimshot. That's yeah, that's so good. Cool. And so yeah, what? Now and again, we'd like go swap with you know live with swap instruments and just go. It's just a bit of fun. Oh, sorry, know? sorry. I, I, yeah, I've mistaken it. It's, on the, it's at the end of Windsock. Um, yeah. The, yeah, the end of Rimshot. Yes, yeah, sorry. The hidden track. Rimsh- yeah, I'm thinking of. I've confused it with um, the song about. Being in a van. What's the hidden song on No Touch? Oh, right? that Grant awesome. sings. I yeah, let him loose. You yeah, let him loose. That's let yeah, yeah. Loose. That's right. Yeah. No, that, that wasn't Grant, man. Oh, wasn't that it? Was, um, no, that was a when we toured Canada. We had this awesome road dog named Costa okay. who um drove us across Canada in his van. And um, this guy was unreal. He used to sing in a band called Blood Sausage, I think. And um, he we. Got, we finished up in Vancouver and we were staying at this um uh this old girl band who were, t- we were touring with called Ten Days Late and they had we stayed at their house they had this little jam room at the bottom of their house and um we just we were just jamming one day and we came up with that song and we thought it's a bit of a sort of hardcore kind of song let's get Costa to sing it so um I think at one point yeah we were we went back to Montreal and recorded it. Yeah. And he came in, I think, like one day and he 
I don't know how he gave him a sign. Must have given him a cassette or something. Yeah. He said, Gosh, we really want you to, uh, you know, sing on this song, you know, write your own lyrics, you know, you can write whatever, whatever you want to write about. And about two days later, he came back, um, yeah, with full lyrics, just about the, the tour itself. And I'll never forget, man, he laid down the vocals in like two takes. Sick. And the whole time he was doing it, man, he had a polystyrene cup of black coffee and a Marlboro red. Dude. And he just nailed it, man. That's so like good. Time, like, Do you want to go again? We're just like, nah. Yeah, dude, nah, that was perfect. He killed it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't need a second take of perfection. One's all you need. That's so good. That's right. Uh, yeah. He, he was such a good dude. I've had a lot of contact with him. I've tried to uh, find him on Facebook and whatnot, but... Uh, he was unreal. He was, he was wicked. He made, totally made that song. That's, that's amazing. So what, then what about um, you also wrote slash I assume play guitar on um, the song Ramones the Same? Yeah, yeah. That was, um, that was just when we were doing demos for, um, I think it was for uh, How It Works. Yeah. I remember, because um, I'm very embarrassed about my... Uh, lack of guitar ability and whatnot. And we're doing demos at Hot House in Matilda, and uh, the other guys went out to get some lunch. And I remember saying to Craig, the engineer, it's like, dude, while the other guys are gone, let me put down this um, drum line and a bass line. I've just got this idea for a song, but don't tell the other guys about it. So they're like, yeah, yeah, cool. That's so good. So I just did the the drums and, and bass for it. I had no idea... Know, what the song was going to be about, and then about three months later, we went back in to um, do some more demos. And I remember Grant picking me up from the house and going, "Oh, dude, Joey Ramone died." I'm like, oh fuck, that, that's terrible. Yeah. And um, I just remember thinking, "Oh, I'll you know put some because that song's kind of very Ramone." Yeah. I'll just write a little brief tribute to um, Joey Ramone. And, um, yeah, and thankfully, the other guys were great, man. I thought they'd just think the song was a complete piece of crap, but no, nah, they all, they done it. Yeah. And, and they all had fun with it, too. I remember, um, I think Cam ended up playing bass on it. Um, <laughs> I remember my instructions to Tommy were, um, <laughs> very simple. I said, whenever there's not singing, just go eight shit on the wah wah on awesome. the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and it was cool. It was just good fun. It was just my little quiet tribute to um the great legendary Joe Ramone. Yeah. What what else was kind of ticking around um you know at that time like musically for you besides besides all the obvious things like what's something that could kind of maybe you were listening to that would surprise people. Um, I probably surprised people, but when we recorded um No Touch Red, um, yeah, you know, I was away for about six weeks in Canada and um but that time I split up with my girlfriend and when I got back home I found out you now she'd hooked up with some other dude which is you know you know when you're early twenties that's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. And um I remember listening to that second Foo Fighters album, The Colour and Shape. Shape. Yep. And that was about Dave Grohl's first marriage breakup. And um man, I could totally identify with that album, man. Yeah. Like one of just like a cracking rocking kick-ass, well-produced album. I love the first record, too. That was kind of like, kind of clumsy, kind of demo kind of yeah. record, which is cool as well. 
But yeah, that second record, man, they really hit their straps, and yeah, I still love that album to this day, man. Yeah, it's a it's a, a it's a classic '90s album. It's untouchable. Yeah, totally. Actually, man, let, let's change it, man. Let's um, let's go with Monkey Wrench instead of the replacement or whatever works for you. No, man. no, let's. That's fine. Look, you know what? Let's do them both because, like, why not? Let's do them both. So it's cool. <laughs> we'll do Monkey Wrench. Let's check it out.
So was like I had no idea that you know the genesis of that album was about a breakup. Like was a you know his yeah yeah, yeah his first yeah it was almost like a concept record about his uh, if you listen to it from start to finish kind of um you know uh, first songs about him kind of what like they're venturing into something that he's just not ready for yeah. And it just goes along this kind of journey. And by the end, you just kind of like, you know, I'm ready to all let this go and start it again, you know? It was really clever. So uh, was the was the breakup from, um, uh, was it the lady from, the the female from Veruca Salt? What's, was that? Yeah, I think he had an affair with the chick from Veruca Salt and his wife, you know, Found his credit card receipt and so he stayed at a hotel. So he got totally busted, man. He, he fucked up. Right. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Because like, because yeah, the Everlong's about her, which is like, you know, imagine having that song written about you. That's you know, that's, yeah, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. 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 Totally. Great song. Too. Yeah. So what? Is, so what is it about, Monkey? It's just it's a ball terror of a song. Track two. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's just a kick-ass song, man. I love that awesome scream he does at the end of that little diatribe in the middle, yeah. man. It's just, just rocking, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's unreal. Sick. Um, cool. Okay, so, like, this bit's a weird bit of the podcast because it's like, you know, depending on kind of the last thing we talked about to say, like, what have you been doing recently? Like, you know, from the – you said you left Body Jar in 2004, and that's – so it's 15 years ago. Yeah. Condense as much as you want what's been happening over the last 15 years for you. Um, well, yeah, yeah I left Body Jar in 2004. Um, and that was, it was just the right time to do it. Um, the, you know, the guys in the band were totally understanding. Um, yeah, you gotta understand first and foremost before I'm a drummer or whatever else, I'm a rock fan, man. You know, I've seen a ton of bands in my days and I know when someone's not into it and I didn't want to be that guy. You know, I think it's unfair on the band and unfair on the audience. So and you know, we got together, I you know, talked talk to them about it. They were understanding. I said, No, I've just got someone young and keen who's really into it and hence yeah they got Shane Wacker and I think it was like 20 years old when he joined wow, okay. and he was just he was a champion at the bit man he kicked off and he's still kicking off today he's great yeah. he's a really good dude so now nah, it worked out well man they were that's just so happy that they, I'm still really good friends with those guys you know yeah. like um I was listening to his podcast the other day with um Steve Gorman the drummer from the like Crows. Okay. He was saying that you know, Rich and Chris Robinson haven't spoken to each other in five years, man. And those guys are the brothers, man. Yeah. They're like blood relatives. I find that so sad, man. So, now I'm just very lucky that I had such a good 10-year run with Body Jar. Still awesome mates with them. And yeah, since then, man, I've just sort of been like a yeah, I'm pretty content, you know. I've just been sort of kicking around in other bands. I, I quit playing for about six years because um, at one point, not long after Body Jar, a friend of mine had a, had a cover band and his drummer uh, went over to Thailand for about three months. He said, oh, can you fill in? And he's gone. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, dude. 
And, um, dude, it was horrible. <laughs> Man, playing in a cover band is like, I can only describe it as playing shit songs badly in front of an audience that just don't care. They don't give a fuck and, for the most part, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's awful, man. You know, especially after playing in a Vickal band for like 10 years where you really take pride in your performance and just want to make sure you can do the best thing you can. And I don't want to sound like an ingrate. My buddy was really cool. He paid me well. You know, gave me drink cards, the whole bit. But after three months of that, I I just really didn't like playing drums, man. I just made playing drums like such a chore. Yeah. I remember that was... A, Around that time, I started really getting into um, stand-up comedy CDs because uh, okay. they're after, after playing presets of shitty music, man. You don't want to drive home listening to music. Yeah, you no. want to drive home listening to some dude telling you jokes. For a lot of that, you there, I stand-up comedy. Um, I still love stand-up comedy. Today. So, what were you listening to? But, um, what, like, what comedians were you listening to? Oh, old school dudes like uh, Bill Hicks. Yep. Um, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, yeah. um, uh, Lewis, uh, Lewis Black. Um, yeah, just whatever was kind of a, a available back then. Since then, I've got a ton more of them. But uh, yeah, it was, it was just a really good way to kind of unwind after a gig. You know? Yeah, I find um, comedy albums are a great late night, late night driving thing. Like, yeah, you can just, yeah, totally. Yeah, you, you, you're still... Um, Especially, you know, especially after playing three sets two hours away from home when you've got to pack the drums up and you, you're not, you know, you're probably not going to walk on the door at 2.30 or whatever. Um, they're just a, a great companion to kind of keep you uh, awake enough and, you know, alert enough because you're actually paying attention to what's being said. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love podcasts for the same reason. Absolutely, too, yeah. I work, as a, I work as a courier, so I, I drive around the van all day and now. I love podcasts, man. I'm so glad you know, someone got me turned on to your podcast. Yeah. It's just really cool to drive around, you know, listening to stories, learning stuff, and it keeps you alert. Yeah. You know, it keeps your, your mind active. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's sick. So you, I unfortunately missed you when you were up in um, Sydney recently. Do you want to tell us about, well, tell everybody about what, you know, what you're doing musically and why you're up in Sydney? Yeah, yeah. Um, about five months ago, I joined a band called Riff Raiders. And, um, yeah, we just did a couple of shows in Sydney. Um, it was great, man. We really enjoyed the, the gigs. I think we played the hideaway and thank you Pete as well. Um, but it was, yeah, it was just cool. Like, uh, well, it was just really good to bond as a band as well. Because, uh, you know, I've been in the band five months and, We've basically just been doing rehearsals and kind of work and gigs, which, you know, is work also, but a bit of a distraction. So it was good to actually just hang out and just shoot the shit. It was, it was really cool. I'm really looking forward to the future ahead of them. I think we're hitting the studio in October, um, which will be fun. They've got a batch of awesome new songs that I'm really keen to play. See. And um, yeah, it's just good fun, man. They're, so it's a husband, yeah, husband, uh, yeah, husband wife, wife couple, yeah, yeah, duo, yeah. Well, not duo, but partnership, and then you drumming. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah. Marty and Jenny Powell have been kicking around for a little while, and um, yeah, like I guess got myself and my good buddy Josh, who I played in another band with called The Bits. Um, just got 
yeah, the both of us in, and um, we've got this kick-ass bass player from Detroit called Ron. They're on the fourth thing of frustration, and um, yeah, it's just it's good fun, man. Like we're not gonna, you know, we're approaching our fifties, you know, we don't set the world on fire, but yeah. we just want to enjoy it and do things right, you know. And um, yeah, I've been really enjoying the journey so far. See, so before we pick, um, before we pick the last song, is there anything you kind of want to? send us off with? Not really. I just want to say just keep supporting local bands and local music, yep. man. Yep. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely and it's, it is. Yeah, it deserves all the support it can get. And, um, yeah, and thank you all so much for your time today, man. Mate, I really enjoyed our little chat. I, and I appreciate you giving me the time to have the chat. I really I really dig it. No sweat, bro. Anytime. So, so what are we going to go out with? Well... That's a tough one, man. There's about like 10 bands I was kind of like uh, deciding which, which, one to, which one to do. But I'm going to have to go with a band from California called Rival Thumb. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know them. Yep. Yeah, they're kind of a bit Led Zeppelin. You know, a bit Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin-esque, I guess. Yeah. And uh, they've got this song called Open My Eyes, which I just think is killer. It's got a great drum sound. Smoking riff and the dude singing man, he, he just he delivers his uh, vocals with such conviction. It's just awesome.
Alright, thank you for listening. Um, My Age Podcast on all the socials, Facebook, um, Instagram, the website itself, myagepodcast.com. If you think this episode's worth a dollar, hit it up, paypal.me slash myagepodcast, or you can go to patreon.com slash myagepodcast and subscribe. Cool. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking. Everybody knows the captain line. Everybody got this broken feeling. Like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rose. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that you love me, baby. Everybody knows that you. Everybody knows you've been discreet, but there were so many people you just had to meet without your clothes. And everybody knows, everybody knows, everybody knows, that's how it
beach in Malibu Everybody knows it's coming upon Take one last look at this sacred heart Before it blows And everybody knows Everybody knows Everybody Everybody knows. Everybody knows.